Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series in which we look at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'd be your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode VIII, The Augustan Revolution. The death of Julius Caesar created a power vacuum, with his nephew Octavian on one side and his great ally and friend Mark Antony on the other, both vying to be ruler of the Roman Empire. Octavian will be the ultimate victor and become better known as Emperor Augustus. Rhiannon starts by telling us how he came to take that name. If you could, can you clarify his names at this point? Where is he, Octavius, Octavian, and when is he finally Augustus, and what's the difference between those names? Okay, he's born Octavius, that's his father's name, and the tradition is that you take, so all three of his names are the names he takes from his father, but Octavius is the one that we use. He is adopted by Julius Caesar in Caesar's will, so that's in 44 BCE, and that means that his name is Gaius Julius Caesar, Caesar's name, with Octavian at the end. Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, but we call him Octavian. It's basically an adjective. It mm. means he's the Octavius-ish Julius <laughs> Caesar. <laughs> so 44, he becomes Octavian. And then in 27, when he supposedly restores the Republic, the Senate, out of gratitude, gives him an honorific name. It actually wasn't a done deal that it would be Augustus. Apparently, he toyed with the idea of being called Romulus as his honorific name. But Romulus, who's the founder of Rome, the mythical founder of Rome, had unfortunate tinges associated with him, for example, fratricide. And given that Octavian had just been through a series of civil wars, the Romans made that parallel between civil war and fratricide. It might have been a bit unfortunate. It's too dangerous. So he chooses one that's neutral. Augustus just means the revered one. So what do we know about Augustus and what are the major sources that we're taking this information away from? One of our main sources for knowing about Augustus is his biographer, Suetonius, and he likes to describe all of his subjects. And what he tells us about the physical description of Augustus is that he was very weak, he's bodily weak. So when he gets on the battlefield, he's actually not a very tough warrior. And there is a story that during one of the most important battles that he was ever involved in, which was a sea battle against Antony and Cleopatra, that he was actually seasick for the whole thing. And his right-hand man, Agrippa, did all of the work for him, basically. So it's not so much that Augustus is a great warrior, although he likes to represent himself as such. So there are statues of him in general's uniform, looking very buff, vigorous and youthful. But... It's the fact that he knows how to get and cling on to power. That's why he's successful. It's not really to do with military success. He's not like Julius Caesar. He's not a master of strategy on the battlefield, but he is a master of political strategy. And he knows how to use other people to get him victories, to keep them on side, to keep the army on side, and then how to make sure that he retains power. This is quite a differentiation from um, Mark Antony then, who I suppose, if there's one thing that's quite well known about him besides his relationship with Cleopatra and his friendship with Julius Caesar is that he was a soldier, he was an, uh, an army man, and the army was a real supporter of him as well. 
Well, Octavian, as he was at the time, Augustus, also has his supporters in the army. But if you're being cynical, you could say that he buys that. Whereas Mark Antony, you're right, is a general, is a military figure. And in fact, military historians find it very hard to analyse why Mark Antony lost that battle against Agrippa and Octavian, because it seems like Mark Antony and Cleopatra made a mistake when they just turned on their heels and fled. They were actually in a relatively good position. They must have misread what was going on there. Octavian, apart from anything else, he's also very, very lucky to get to the position that he's in. So if Mark Antony was arguably the better warrior, the better soldier out of the two, then where did Octavian have it over him? Well, he wins the propaganda war in Italy very, very easily because Octavian and Mark Antony decide to divide the empire between them, basically, so that Octavian has the West, which includes Italy, and Mark Antony goes off to Egypt, which is where he gets involved in Cleopatra, which is a very wealthy place. You know, he, he's got the East, then he's got a lot of power too. But Octavian starts to represent Mark Antony as somebody who is associated with Easterners, which means he's associated with luxury. If you know anything about Cleopatra, you probably know that she was represented as having this very extravagant, luxurious lifestyle. And he starts to associate Antony with that. And he does things that you're not meant to do. Like he opens Antony's will and reads it out in public. What? And Antony, before Antony's dead, and Antony has left a certain amount of his property to Cleopatra. So this is a bad look for Antony. And really, Octavian is using Roman prejudice to get at Antony because they're not happy with him being with an Eastern queen. Technically, he shouldn't marry her. Technically, he's married to Octavian's sister. So he ruthlessly divorces her and marries Cleopatra. And this is great for Octavian. He can absolutely use this to show Antony as this general who's gone off the tracks. Mm, it looks completely justified that he takes the moves against Mark Antony that he does. Exactly. And Octavian is very, very keen to say, and he actually says this in the big inscription that is his epitaph, the achievements of the divine Augustus, as we call it, that he has all of Italy behind him. It's not true, but he keeps claiming it. And, you know, it's that old adage that if you say something enough, then people start believing it. So he doesn't just say that he's got Rome, that he's got the political heartland. He says he's got Italy. And that's very clever in itself because it's not that long ago that all of the Italians have been enfranchised as Roman citizens and that northern Italy was even added to what we now think of as Italy. So he's sort of using these relatively recently enfranchised people to say, well, you're part of my gang, right? You haven't always been recognized as full Romans, but now I'm going to make you feel like you're needed you're wanted. Whereas Antony, he's gone off somewhere else. Mm. But what if he decides to move the center of power to Alexandria? Because it's looking that way. I'm the one who's the true patriot, basically, is what he's saying. I care about the heartland. It's the kind of rhetoric that people still use to, to differentiate yourself from somewhere else and therefore use that against the person who has some kind of sympathy or dedication to the other place. It is a very, very clever tactic and it absolutely works. So once he's defeated Mark Antony in battle, made sure at that point that his major opposition is gone, what sort of leader is he trying to be? Is he trying to mirror himself after the rule of his great uncle Julius Caesar? He's trying to be Caesar, but not Caesar. 
He's very proud that he's been adopted by Caesar. That means he's the son of a god because Caesar's been deified. And he uses the fact that Caesar was murdered, of course, early on to have that vengeance against the assassins. But at the same time, he's very aware of the mistakes that Caesar made. And he knows that he's not going to give himself the title dictator. He's not going to make himself look like a monarch. So instead of that, in 27 BCE, he says, I'm giving back the Republic to the Senate. And again, this is in his epitaph, The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. He says, I handed back the Republic. But in fact, what happens in 27 is he's given the name Augustus. And along with that, he starts to be given more and more powers. So he says he's giving back power to the Senate, but in fact, he starts to be invested with more and more powers, which something that's backed up four years later in 23 is called the Second Settlement. But basically, through these two settlements, he gets to be consul quite often. He gets what's called tribunician power, which is the power of the tribunes of the people. And that power is basically the veto, which is a huge power. And he's got it forever. And every emperor after that gets tribunician power. It's another thing they have written on their coins. Trib pot means that they have the power of the veto. And that basically in the Republic was something that the consuls had but they were voted in every year, so nobody had it forever. And the tribunes had, obviously, it's the power of the tribunes. And they were voted for. They were the representatives of the people, supposedly. So now Augustus has that, and he always has it. So you can't put up a law if he doesn't want it. He can just say no. Plus, he's got really more important than that. He's got an enormous amount of authority, and he's got a tame Senate, pretty much, because through the civil wars, everyone who has been opposed to him has gradually being got rid of. So he's in a wonderful position to take sole power, but, and this is really the crux of it, to look like he's not doing that, to be able to say, I'm restoring the Republic. This is the end of the civil wars. We're not going to have any more of that. That makes, you know, Italy has really suffered through those civil wars, as have other bits of the empire. So people are happy with that. Uh, there isn't that much opposition left. And if there is, they're too scared to do anything. And he's in a position where he looks like he's being conventional and traditional. But for anyone who's really clever, they can see through it. Mm. They might see through it and accept it because it's better than the alternative, which is probably warfare again. Or they might look at it and, and feel it's completely unacceptable, but they're pretty much powerless by this point. So he's got a lot of power that he's holding for himself, but how did, how did he use this power? It's one thing to have it, but another thing to put it to use. So did he, did he use it to, say, crack down on his detractors to deal with any opposition? Or was he the sort of ruler who, who had this power but could be trusted, trusted to use it wisely? Well, that's what we all want, isn't it? The benevolent tyrant. Yes. <laughs> well, it depends who you are, I suppose. He absolutely controls information, which is something that I think is still pertinent to us. For example, he gets hold of all of the prophecies. These can be very powerful for the Romans. Any text that has a prophecy in it, the most famous ones are the Sibylline oracles. He burns most of them. This is Suetonius tells us this. He has most of these books burnt, so that's censorship. He keeps a few of the Sibylline oracles, presumably, which are advantageous to him, and he locks them away in the Temple of Apollo. This is a Temple of Apollo that he has had built, which has a direct passageway to his house. So he has control over information. 
Similarly, if you are a writer who says something that he's not very happy with, and the most famous example is the poet Ovid, then you're probably in trouble. And indeed, Ovid was exiled in 8 CE and had to live on the shores of the Black Sea for 10 years and died there. So he's quite ruthless about getting rid of dissenting voices. And he's made this very clear and he's made it clear from early on where after he's defeated Antony, he gets rid of various people who are left who might cause him trouble, like Antony's eldest son, like probably Caesar's son with Cleopatra. They're executed, they're assassinated because they're too much of a threat to Augustus. Now, a lot of scholars, I think, probably with some justification, have seen this as a lesson he learned from Julius Caesar, because Julius Caesar pardoned a lot of his detractors. And of course, we all know that that meant there were people around to stab him in the theatre of Pompey. So he's sort of come through a hard political schooling, I guess. And the result is that he's quite ruthless when he comes to power. So Augustus had the title of emperor for a long time, for many years. How did he handle diplomacy in that time? And was he a man of the battlefield or somebody who entered negotiations? He's not going out and fighting battles himself at this point. He's not even really pretending to, but he is someone who cultivates that reputation for building the empire. In, in fact, he pretty much just consolidates the empire. Is he doing this through Agrippa? Agrippa is around for a while, I think until 12 BCE, but it's more his stepson Tiberius, who he start, who's going to be the next emperor actually, who he starts sending out, say, to fight in Germany and areas like that, where the Romans are never really fully successful, but Tiberius, you know, has some successes there. He has effectively conquered Egypt, he's created that as a province, and that's a major coup and also a huge amount of wealth comes with that, which is really good for Augustus because now he can start using that wealth to please the people and build things. But he doesn't actually extend the empire much more than that. It is much more about keeping the status quo. And one of the great coups he has in terms of diplomacy is that he gets back from the Parthians. The Parthians are kind of in the area we call the Middle East. They're really the great remaining power that the Romans haven't managed to conquer. The Parthians had had some Roman standards since 53 BCE when Crassus had gone there and had a huge military defeat that was just shocking and shameful to the Romans. And Augustus managed to get the standards back and he kind of portrayed it as a military victory. Usually that's how you would go about getting a standard yeah. back, isn't it? Yeah, but he, he did it really through diplomacy. Yeah. So there's no conquest of the Parthians going on there. But there's a famous statue of Augustus called Augustus of the Prima Porta, which displays him in military garb. It's the most famous statue of Augustus. And by military garb for the Romans, I mean he's wearing a little little leather skirt. Yeah. It sounds kinky, but it's not. <laughs> and a breastplate. Yeah. And the breastplate on these statues is often the bit that's very highly decorated. And in the middle of this breastplate, he's got a Roman soldier who's often thought to be Tiberius but it's not entirely clear, being handed back the standards by a Parthian. He's clearly a Parthian because he's wearing kind of barbarian clothes. He's not wearing proper Roman military clothing or a toga or anything like that. He's wearing sort of baggy trousers. And he's handing back the standards. So this is on a statue of Augustus as a military man representing what he's 
pretending is this military victory. But again, it's all about the presentation, really. He presents it as this military coup, and that's the way that people think of it. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to the podcast series Emperors of Rome. You can find it on both iTunes and SoundCloud. So if you like it, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. You can follow us both on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, we'll learn about the rule of Augustus and how he imposed his beliefs on the Roman citizens. Until then, I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.